0: Please, gonna have a real good time together. We're gonna have a real good time together. We're gonna laugh the child together. Have a real good time together. Na na na
1: Na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na. Welcome back to Jokerman Podcast, the podcast, the podcast the podcast. It is the podcast about Lou Reed and John Cale. That's right. That's right. There are
2: many Bob Dylan podcasts out there, but there is just one singular Velvet Underground and Lou Reed and John Cale podcast, and it's Jokerman podcast.
1: Yeah, unless there's another one that we don't. uh, No, I've 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 looked it up. There aren't. I'm glad you looked it at Ian. uh, That's Ian. I'm Evan.
2: And we're joined today by a twosome.
1: A gruesome twosome. A a <laughs> that's rude. Uh, well, it's I don't know. I feel like that term is usually just thrown around when it's about something cool. So like the two brothers, Michael oh. and Brian DiDario. It's the Lemon Twigs. It's the Lemon Twigs. Everyone, Long Island's finest. Hey guys, no, can't do,
3: You can't do They can't. It's they can't see you
2: doing the piece Michael.
1: <laughs> no. What did you do? He did peace. Oh, dope. <laughs> That's dope. That's so cool. The peace sign. Uh. So uh, w- today we're talking with all of you, with the whole gang. Michael, Brian, thank you for coming on to the show. Jokerman and Ian, thank you. Because we're going to talk about the the record that is the, the, the Lou Reed, uh, Blonde on Blonde. Lou Reed's Highway 61 Revisited. Lou Reed's... Um, Blood on the Tracks. Uh, Blood on the Tracks. It's just the one Lou Reed album that people know <laughs> most, mostly. And so, Michael, you were talking uh, about how you feel you felt sort of confused about why we would have you, a Lou Reed scholar, on this show to talk about this record, which is Transformer, which is so um, maybe, maybe it feels like it's already been talked about enough. Um, And you know so much more about the later works. But I I was telling you uh, before we started that I think it's because you're overqualified, um, which doesn't mean, uh, you know, it means it's good. That's good. It's good to be that way.
3: Yeah, I it'd be interesting to try to find something to say about it. Jesus. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Jesus <laughs> <laughs> well, well,
2: fortunately, we have lots and lots of practice about saying shit about <laughs> things that uh, there isn't anything to say about so <laughs> we can we can help uh push you along if you need any well,
3: you, I watched, you know like, like um the classic albums is like classic class obviously like oh the, yeah, everybody always yeah. like t- likes to tell you things that they heard it from the classic albums
1: the classic mm-hmm. albums uh which is the two thousand one video uh mo- like Feature whatever it's whatever it is yeah about they have, the making of different records and there's the one for Transformer with, yeah which everybody likes to tell you
3: everybody likes to tell you what like things from that yeah. Con, like, yeah about this and so then I also like to do this I just reread the 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 um, chapter about Transformer and the Anthony De Curtis. Book, and it's literally, life, the, yeah. and it's literally the classic albums. I watched the classic oh albums, God. <laughs> and then I read that, and it was literally the classic albums. And the only thing that's different is the Betty Cronstad, you know, Lou first wife stuff. But it's really not really. It's 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 more of like, oh, that's a good period. Like, yeah, that's a good, really that's a like,
1: classic uh, album. <laughs> they just yeah. go, up, this is a classic album. But
3: I don't know. That's it was. I just thought that was so funny because. I didn't really realize when I read that for the first time that it was not, like, I don't think it's that good. The, not, um, like, the, 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 <clears throat> the a life, not to so be, like, but I think, like, reading it again, I was, like, this is a lot of, like, like this isn't really facts, and, like, this and there's a lot of it, it's just sounds like that, but with, like, there were quotes from the interviews that they show in that.
1: Right. That's a little lazy, honestly. <laughs> I was, like, what? I mean, I'm sorry, but, like, hopefully we can have some fresh and scintillating conversation about this record and I guess approach it with um, a, a, an eye toward or an ear toward wha- what it is like to listen to it in 2022 and just what it, what it means to us now and maybe what it meant to us before. But it's such a specific record documenting and I mean, uh, sort of in a way chronicling a very specific period of time and so, I, I'm curious to see like what that me how that actually holds up. And let's just be, just you know, be honest, hang out, and uh, and and don't be afraid to uh, uh, speak on, speak your mind on this record.
2: We're just here to have a good time, and this is a good times record. You put this record on, makes you smile, makes you happy.
1: What a uh, thing to say <laughs> it's, it's uh, for, as simple uh, for as a that. record that has perfect day on it yeah it just makes you smile makes you happy case closed well
2: i mean most of the way through it is
1: brian what's your history with this record what do you feel about the, about transformer just like off the top of the <laughs> dome
4: well it kind of is like a blonde on blonde uh first velvet underground record type album in that it's one of the first kind of cool albums that I got into in like high school. And uh, because of that, it's kind of hard to listen to it with like a fresh set of ears. You know, you're kind of like, like, and, and also you're very exposed to like Perfect Day and Vicious and uh, Satellite of Love. Um, so it was kind of like hard to listen to it fresh, but I mean, the it seems like the Lou Reed record that, where the production is like, and the arrangements kind of match his writing, um. Uh, in a very uh, cohesive way.
1: Yeah, definitely. I think that uh, with with uh, with that, we'll we'll have I'll definitely have more to say about that thing that you just said, but we should just start talking about the music officially, I guess. So the first song, Vicious, I mean, just to follow up on what you said, Brian, I mean, I do think that that's a really good point about the record, is that it feels like it's kind of partly responsible for uh, Lou's rise to prominence as a solo career uh, as a solo artist it's like entirely
2: responsible for his rise to prominence as but a I, solo I, artist this was like yes, a massive no, hit
1: i mean the reason why it is is because it has this polish this feeling of production being really sensitive and in touch with the songs and that's kind of complete opposite of what we got on right. the last record by lou that we talked about the first one. Oh, that's what you get with and, uh, um, david bowie behind I, the booth He was doing stuff to give Lou this edge, this like sparkle that Lou probably had no idea was going on or like couldn't tell at the time, probably how it was turning out, I imagine.
4: Well, it's interesting, too, because it's like a production team that had already done like it's Ken Scott who engineered uh, or who produced Ziggy Stardust and Mick Ronson and David Bowie. And mm-hmm. I, I think that album was released in the summer of 72. Um, and I think this was recorded like at the end of the summer of 72. Um, yeah. So I'll it's like something. they're kind of riding high on that record and obviously in the same creative flow. Um, as I think maybe one of the. Yeah, the I think the drummer like worked on uh, some T Rex stuff too. Sure. Um, but the fact that Bowie was a huge Lou Reed fan, you know, Velvet Underground fan, um, certainly helps, you know?
1: Yeah. I mean, that's like crazy to be a huge Lou Reed fan at the point when he hasn't even done this yet. Just to be like, Oh yeah, that guy's great. And to know, I mean, it it is really an, an insane feat, I think to, like it, ha- it had to be somebody like David Bowie, uh, it being involved on some level, maybe to like see what can be done. What is Lou Reed really about as a solo artist? Because that's not necessarily clear. If you just knew the Velvet Underground, it was starting to emerge more and more. And I think that's my point that about Loaded. A lot is that it feels more like the beginnings of this than it does feel like a, a a velvet underground record at all.
2: I don't know, because like low, like this is a really kind of like glammy quote unquote sounding record, you know, and like after this, like Lou doesn't really go down that road very much. like I, I really do feel like this is a really like th- like it's like I know we talk about like the really heavy Lanois touch on the Bob mm-hmm. records a lot. I feel like there's a really heavy Bowie touch on these songs. Uh, and it's not a direction. I mean, it sounds great. And I think it's super successful for this record in this moment in time. And obviously it did a lot just to like establish Lou as like a really successful artist who could go on to do everything else that he would go on to do. But it, uh, it, it feels like there are other people like kind of in with their fingers in the, uh, in the soup here, as opposed to something <laughs> like loaded, which I think is, you know, uh, again, we'll get to loaded, but I, mean, I think that's more, that's more him doing him.
1: Sure, it is, but also, like, you listen to the beginning of, of rock and roll. It's, like, it's so, like, that's glammy as hell. Like, there's so much flowery well, just some sparkling
2: guitars and stuff.
1: Yeah, but that's not, that, like, anything he would do before or after. It's, like, those three records, though, that you're putting out. Like, feel like Loaded, then Lou Reed self-titled, and then this. Yeah. They kind of have this, that poppier, glamier 70s Lou Reed that, I guess, this is, like, the crystallization of the apotheosis of, yeah, yeah like Bowie's like whatever that angle is he like really helps uh, to guide it toward yeah he's pulling it out a clear and concise version of that and uh, with that we can talk about the first track Vicious
2: Those dogs sound pretty, yeah. pretty vicious. Yeah.
4: Who are, who are those?
2: <laughs> those are
4: some yapping pups outside my window. Pups. Oh, you're um, the one. I, th-
2: I thought those were Evan's dog. I th- no, Evan no, usually no. has my dogs, dogs barking in the do. background. I didn't know you had dogs barking in the background too, Brian.
1: No, it's uh. Yeah. Uh, it's pups. an American problem. <laughs> it's just all over this, this place. It's so funny
4: uh, that he was thinking about, um, like, the factory so much... In this period, you know? I mean, are there any allusions to Warhol and the Factory on his last record, on Lou
1: Reed? On Lulu? No, 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 yeah, uh, well, on the first. uh, uh, (laughs) uh, Oh, his last record, record. yeah. No, no, the last record Um, is, like, um, I'm, you
2: know, the one mean, (laughs) on Lulu.
1: (laughs) I don't know. I mean, I don't think that they're nearly as explicit. Of course, the the references to Lou uh, to Andy and the factory that we're getting are in this record are many and various and right off the bat. Vicious is a song that really only exists because of Andy Warhol. He said, you should make a song called vicious. And, uh, he said, what do you mean vicious? And he said, allegedly vicious. You, I hit you with a flower. <laughs> there it is.
2: <laughs> Took it pretty literally.
1: <laughs> um, I I, uh, I loved that. I, I always love. Uh, I hit you with a flower. It's like something that's interesting for Warhol to say because it's like a little poem and it's like a pop art poem. Like it's kind of the same effect as looking at his flower paintings, uh, something I didn't put together till recently. All those flower paintings by Warhol. I hit you with a flower. Think about you know, think about that that in your pipe and smoke it. Wow,
2: you're really you're you're seeing the matrix here. See I'm going I'm going deep. I'm going so deep into this.
1: I'm going to places that the classics album classic album uh do you like this song, uh Michael?
3: Yeah, I love it. I love every song that on this album. I love every song Mother. I like, all I like them all. Um, you know, listening to this thing I didn't have trouble like kind of like seeing it as like a just an album because I probably like ha- I haven't listened to it like that much in a long time so it's pretty easy for me to like although like more like with the rock ones like like vicious and uh, wagon wheel and, and uh, what's the other one uh, I'm so free
1: hanging and around like the, and,
3: and hanging around Is wagon wheel even rocking.
2: Yeah, it's like somewhat rocking.
1: Wagon Wheel is the one I always forget about, but
2: <laughs> it's as close to cowboy as Lou ever went.
4: I would say Lonesome Cowboy Bill though would be would be oh, as yeah. close um, to cowboy, cowboy
2: as good, he Bill. went. Good point. Yeah, he did. <laughs> Literally had cowboy in the title. Lou Reed
1: Cowboy Mode. <laughs> cowboy mode. The times when he's done that, you got Wagon Wheel, and which is kind of cowboy in name only. But. That's it. Is rare yeah. though.
2: Yeah, it's it's rare. It's it's few and far between that Lugo's cowboy
1: Well, because he's a city slicker. Right. He's not he doesn't belong on the range. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine this, this city guy going? It would be it would be absurd. It would be absurd if he would be a fish out of water on the range. If he was out there under those big blue skies. Who knows what would happen? Who can say? <laughs> I'm, pitching, I'm pitching a movie right now, you know, by the <laughs> way. <laughs>
2: Vicious is uh it's just like a perfect little song and a perfect yeah. way to start this record. I think of it sort yeah. of similar to like Taxman uh from Revolver. Like right then yeah, like Tax Taxman. It, yeah, it's just like such a like it just like gets you in. It's got such a perfect like guitar riff. So much fun, you know. It's uh it's and like it, I don't think it needs to be anything more than that. It's like it's literally like a like a gum drop that you just like chew and it's a little sugar rush.
1: You hit me with some taxes. I like it. I like
3: it. Oh, one. you like it? You like
1: yeah. it. <laughs> I step on your hands so and I. mangle your feet.
3: Yeah, that's the line. That's the line I really like.
1: I mangle your feet. I I just the song is so lean and mean, like that cowbell. And those those guitar solo parts, or those little licks are like really underrated. They I, sound like, great. They sound so good and they they have this kind of um I don't know, they they've got an edge to them in this way that feels like you know, like the the production team or everyone working on it, like they knew exactly where to throw something a little bit more fiery. To like,
2: yeah, I think it's interesting to listen to this record right on the heels of of the first Lou Reed record. Like, mm-hmm. and like, think about it on like a production like uh, standpoint because that first Lou record like is. Some fantastic songwriting. A lot of these songs, you know, were all written at the same time. You know, this was a lot of leftover VU material, just like uh, the first one was. But just, like, the lean, kind of mean, sharp sound they get on this record, which doesn't sound like the Velvets, but it's closer to the Velvets than the first Lou uh, record is, which is really just kind of, like we talked about in that episode, like, ugly and kind of, like, trudging and, like, harsh. It, uh, it just, like, you can tell right off the bat, I think that they they figured it out with this one.
1: You know, I don't think of this record as sounding sharp i think of it as sounding kind of tame and like most when i just kind of think it's of bright on, on the whole bright it's bright
3: but it's warm and it's very like it's not like it's so it's not focused like, like sally can't dance is like super super like bright but it's also it's yeah it's also pretty like like the like. it's not yeah, it's, like
1: it's, it's sally not, it can't dance really... is a bit tinnier in in a way that it's i find i think we everyone who likes that record finds that kind of charming a little bit like more yeah. of a featherweight type of production in some ways. Yeah, a little chintzier. I like that, that, yeah,
3: because I was thinking about like, 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 because this album is like sweetened, you know, kind of in a way, like, like with yeah, script, how you would definitely. call it, you know, probably like, and then, but then Berlin and Sally Can't Dance both are too completely. They're both like mm-hmm. they're arranged differently. Like this is this is arranged like, you know, in the Bowie Mick Ronson way. But then the Bob Ezrin, you know, Berlin, and then the like Can dance, it, like for the Bob, the Berlin one is like super obviously like super fleshed out and like crazy, you know. But then the Can dance one is kind of sweetened in like a traditional way, you know, like horns yeah, and stuff. Yeah. It's like it's like kind of more just straight up, and like uh, I feel like um, like um, it's interesting because like. I don't know like thinking of any of that stuff as a letdown or something. I I feel like I understand his like him like him thinking that you know they're great. You know? I mean obviously they're great. Yeah, so a, it doesn't matter what he's thinking would that say about it. But I, a I, mean, blue
1: I feeling strongly about that they're really good. Oh you know, yeah, like like,
3: like I like, not thinking that it was out of left field. You know what I mean? Like there's something well, like, I
1: think that uh, there's something to that feel, that thing of um Lou having this kind of deep affection for like R and B, like classic sort of rhythm and blues stuff and 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 doo wop and things like that. He uh, he probably got a really big thrill out of being able to make songs that have those kinds of textures and feelings in them, uh, and and have them sound authentic. There's so many moments that have this kind of that lushness that he probably really like thought like oh this is terrific yeah
4: yeah the scenes Uh, in the uh documentary where he's listening to like bowie's vocals and where he's listening to mick ronson's string arrangements are so cool i mean he's obviously getting a huge thrill just hearing those that aspect of the record um so he obviously must have just really enjoyed it at the time
1: the next song is uh, Andy's Chest, and I i was really kind of, I mean, I guess there's no way around talking about the classic album's fucking documentary, but uh, it's because there's a lot of footage of Lou talking about the record in it, and so, like, where else are you going to get that? But I was really moved. I don't know if you've noticed, like, when you watched it, Michael, like, did it not strike you that he's, like, so emotional when he recites the lyrics to this yeah to andy's chest it it made me think of the song in a whole new way actually i've forgotten about that part and that he really reads these lyrics he reads them just there's footage of him just off the page reciting them as a poem and they're really something they they really seem like this deep love for andy comes through and uh the song kind of downplays that it's a it's a sweet and cute sounding song but it's kind of a major statement as as just writing toward yeah. toward Andy it's like a love song if i could be
5: anything in the world that flew i would be a bat and come swooping after you and if the last time you were here things were a bit askew well you know what happens after dark when rattlesnakes lose their skins and their hearts and all the missionaries lose their bark or oh, all the trees are calling
4: after and you. also but the fact that it has that hole. Part about, you know, her hands became her feet, her belly button was her mouth. Yeah. You know, that the fact that all of those dedications at the end of the song follow that kind of right. it, it it does make it seem less serious. You know? Maybe
1: that's why I've, I didn't think of those certain lyrics as being as serious as they might be. Like, the, there are a lot of those like goofy ones about the bear and the hairy minded uh, bear pink bear bear pink bear bear yeah. <laughs> those
4: like are remind me of like something that like a little kid would just be ma- just make up yeah, yeah
1: exactly it's, it's nonsense poetry it's just goofy silly stuff it's he's him just having him, fun he's in like wiggle mode like under the yeah, red sky like, literally <laughs> yes but, in but the same on a really song, yeah exactly on a really do- kind of emotionally affected uh, song and curtains laced with diamonds dear for you and all the roman noblemen for you
5: and all the roman noblemen for you and kingdoms christian soldiers dear for you and melting ice cap mountaintops
1: and melting ice cap mountain for you i mean who does that sound like and
5: Among them Do you think could resist you? And knights
1: in flaming silver robes. Yeah we for got you. We, got it. just- we got it. We got it. It's literally just sad eyed lady. But uh, you know, that's good. And also it's not just it's not like just derivative of Dylan or it's it has this other thing. There's a lot more going on and swoop swoop, baby rock rock referencing the if I could be anything in the world that flew, I'd be a bat and come swooping after, swooping you. after you. It's like that's just, uh, that it's such a great way to bookend uh, the song. You've got this thing about the bat, and then just ending it with swoop, swoop, rock, rock. It's like he does, he can do it all on this song. He has silly, he's got like deeply sincere poetic, and he's just got rock and roll.
2: Yeah, I mean, he's really great at like, and you see this all over the record, obviously, most famously with, with Wild Side, which got played on AM radio and people didn't know, you know, what he was really talking about, even though it's very clear if you spend a second listening to the lyrics. He's just really good at like kind of camouflaging um, uh, his, his true intentions and sentiments in the midst of you know either kind of in he, the midst of when a you squalor. guys
3: watched uh when you guys watched the thing where when he goes uh when he reads the thing and he goes uh
1: swoop swoop oh baby yeah. rock rock and then i was
3: like i was like i was like oh this is awkward now
1: no i actually that's i stuck with it no, at that I point heard. i was like no it's that not, is still po. Like, uh, that's still like, a like, poem. He's going
3: swoop, swoop, baby, rock, rock, whatever. Then he just says it again, and then I was like, "Oh man, is it gonna be like another time where he's?" Gonna... <laughs> 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 where he's but sit. He he
1: does, but I I read that as him just like uh, standing by it. Yes, as no, poetry, it was you know, it, even I, that part. I just part,
3: thought it yeah. was funny. It's almost like I almost like
1: it I'm, is funny, I,
3: and I am framing it away. It's not really true because obviously he'd be like, "Oh, that's so like immature or something," but like. It's like but it's just funny. It's like if he had to say it like five times, you know,
1: (laughs) it would have been uh, that's when it would have started to get maybe a little strange. What we talked earlier about, like how he he's really good at cutting down to the chase, cutting down to the marrow. And then sometimes he's like poetic and it's like a little clumsy. And on this one, it feels like he's poetic and he's having fun with it and and there's other parts totally. of this record where he cuts right yeah, down. Totally. Yeah, you're totally right. But he just he just doesn't try to make it too exactly, serious. Exactly. Yeah. This here.
2: this is a way easier, way more successful like, you know, poetic mode for Lou than fucking warlocks and wizards and shit. Like you get on Ocean. Yeah. Like this like and and so, you know, obviously it took him a little bit of time to figure it out, although this Ocean and this were both Velvet's songs initially, but um, you know, it, he's the more records you make the better you get at it. Shocking.
1: Yeah, and it's not that he can't do um, sort of silly uh, or whimsical stuff. He has that in him. He just, uh, <laughs> the war- it, it's the, the warlocks. <laughs> I think
2: he's going for something other than whimsy with the warlocks line. Well,
1: no, I mean, I'm talking about the, this sure. song more so. Like, but, I mean, yeah, he's going for, like, I don't even know. Like <laughs> he's going fanciful, to, like, Dungeons and it Dragons like, shit with that. But uh, it works on this song. It, it's oh, it called Andy's Chest, Why? Was he got that. shot in the chest? That's right.
4: It says on Wikipedia that it was um, that he had a big scar on his chest. Yeah, but yeah. doesn't he say there's some line on songs for Drella where he talks about the person? Yeah, who, yeah, who shot about him.
1: Valerie Solanas, who um, was a sort of radical. Uh, well, I think it's more accurate to say a mentally ill person. Uh, who shot Andy Warhol? Because she thought he, he was controlling her life, uh, and or and or wanted to make just some kind of a like m- totally misguided political social statement. Anyway, I have nothing good to say about her.
2: We'll get to have a big long conversation about that when we get to Drella.
3: Evan doesn't like her, man. He's taking a
1: stand, <laughs> man. Well, she shot Andy Warhol, and I I, I
2: like him. I'm more of a John Hinckley Jr. Uh, type of guy when it comes to people who've shot uh, famous 20th century icons. You like that guy? <laughs>
3: like that guy? He,
1: haven't you listened to his music? It's pretty good. I think he, did, he was better with a different instrument. <laughs> and he still wasn't good enough that Yeah, he should have been a little bit better. Well <laughs> <laughs> said.
2: Uh, all right. Uh, it's such a perfect day. I'm glad um, yeah. I'm spending it with all of you.
5: And later, a movie too, and then home.
3: Take this computer just, over uh, to Central
1: Park, uh, and then we can do the thing from there. You there. go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> just walking around with the laptop with Perfect Day playing, it. and us all kind of just sitting there um, drinking sangria. Which
4: version of this song do you like better, the one the one on this album, or the one that features Bono? <laughs> Excuse me. Do you
3: like the
1: one? <laughs> do you like on this, this record, one? Record, one with all the
3: different or
1: people. The, what, which one is the one that?
3: They, sh- they showed
4: um, in the-, the Transformer movie? It's uh, versus
1: Lou. I didn't finish watching, rewatching the Transformer movie.
3: You know, when people when people talk about the Transformer, that Transformer movie, does your mind? Yeah, Transformers.
1: Classic, uh- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, w- what we're talking about here is one of like the best songs ever written, I think. Um, I think. Do you think so?
3: What a Gang? perfect day!
1: It's pretty good.
4: It's a it's it's a beautiful, it's a really beautiful song. Um, who knows? There's men. There's so many songs. Okay,
1: don't, <laughs> for the love of God,
2: don't take. <laughs> can we can we all agree that it's a three star song at least?
4: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I I would say it's it's definitely one of the best on this uh, album too. Um, yeah,
1: well, you know what I mean <laughs> when I say one of the best ever written. And being hyperbolic, but it is it is so good. Yeah, it's
4: so good. I don't know if you can write a better
1: song. It's like he's, he's more direct about things that are more serious than most people are willing to put in a song, and that's his gift to the world, really. And it's like this song is as big in people's imaginations and hearts as it is because it is incredibly direct in that way. Yeah.
2: It is, and yet it is, like, also, like, it's not called heroin the way that heroin is called heroin. So he is doing that thing again where he's kind of trying to camp, like, people could play this, like, as a love song to someone and be like, it's such a perfect day. I'm glad I spent it with you. (laughs) Just completely take it on face value.
1: Yeah, but I think if you're doing that, you just didn't finish the song. I mean, I... The way it ends is kind of like uh, so right. haunting. Well, you
2: get a little lost by the end of it. It's coming back to it on this one for me, the all the like orchestral stuff was like maybe a little much for me. Like it, it's not. I mean, it's a it's an immaculate song, like perfect kind of construction, but it it's a little kind of it's a little blown out there for my tastes.
1: Fair, I mean, but we can really pin that on David Bowie and Co. Yeah, that's your fault, Bowie and Rawlinson. Yeah, you made this song lush and and or and orchestral. You brought a cinematic scope to this. How you fucked this you? one up? <laughs> Wait,
3: so since it uh, since they say uh you're going to reap just what you sow, it's it's dark.
1: I think so. I mean, there there's lyrics in it Which, you know, the beginning of the song is really about the perfect day that seems like... Just because um, you made me forget myself? No, not... Yeah, I mean, I thought I was, as someone else, someone good. I think there's a lot unspoken, and that's really the strength of the song and why it earns that kind of grandiosity is that it has this kind of thing right below the surface where this perfect day that the narrator is talking about, one gets the impression that... It maybe was the first good day in a long time, or the last. It has this kind of extremely... Do you think it's a kind of foreboding
3: quality to it or something like that?
1: Yeah, this blown-up significance of of what the day, which sounds very simple, means, and, and that it kind of invites you to think about why this day is not like the other days. <laughs> um, hmm. I mean... The ending, you're going to reap just what you sow, is also pretty mysterious. So, like, I don't think it's very—it's not so clear exactly how that relates to. Yeah, the you can lyric. read
2: into it whatever you want. It is a really straightforward and direct kind of lyric. You know, he's literally talking about hanging out and drinking sangria in the park. But like, it could be about a fucked up romance. It could be about heroin. It could be about both. It could be just about you know a good romance, or you know, it, it can mean different things to you in different areas in your life.
3: Well, oh, it is about the day that he spent with Betty Kronstad and she says it happened exactly like that except they got into a fight but she says everything in the song is what happened
1: well it, it, be that as it may I've never I, I feel like the song has just like a a power on its own, and I guess I do read a lot into it. I've always felt the song was really sad. Oh, but that's yeah, that, it,
2: that's the great thing about it is like it can be and like literally taken from his day with Betty, but it can also be something that you Evan are reading very deeply into.
1: I could be. I mean, maybe I, I assume that, that I guess maybe no it works wrongly. on both I levels. I kind of assume that a lot of people think of the song that way. Yeah, I don't know. I it's it
4: interesting on. to hear him in the movie almost put down that last line as like trite i think he calls it trite uh, i think he
3: almost oh does he 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 says or he says that 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 it's a cliche but it's it's that it's it's, a cliche yeah i think that it's like um if he says that it
1: It literally is he
3: says uh well that was just a cliche i just threw that in and it's i think it's supposed to sound like it means something heavy Mm
2: -hmm. yeah it gives the it gives the song sort of a sour note to end on it's a little clearer
3: it's like supposed to sound like, you know, like, like, I don't know, maybe it has something to do with not deserving that kind of treatment because of the person that he's, you know, you made me forget myself type line, you know, but then like, yeah. but, but that's to me like internal. And like, I guess just, I have a shallower understanding of it because it's not cause, cause I take it, at, I, I do take it at face value. And I think of the kind of guy that he's supposed to have been and, and the relationship that they're supposed to have had where he leaned on her so much and all that stuff that it's like mm-hmm. I think of it like um, you made me forget myself I thought I was someone else, someone good like I don't deserve you And that, but it's right. like it was just like she was really young and like I mean he, was, I don't know like he was going to be 30 or 30 or something and she was like in her early 20s or whatever and like 19 when they met or something just that 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 she relied, uh, he relied heavily, you know. Well, they her. were also
4: together, like, yeah. when the Velvet Underground broke up and everything, right?
3: Yes. Mm-hmm. It was, like, the thing about Berlin is that, the thing about Berlin is that, like, he wrote it in a night or whatever. He wrote, like, most of it in a night, and then he played it to her in the morning, and then it was, like, a lot of, like, their marriage was in it, and a lot of, like, her parents' story was mm-hmm. in it. And it was, like... You know, really upset. He, she says, you know, that's when he lost me.
1: Can you imagine somebody doing that? You? <laughs> I, know. <laughs> no, I know. And I, just I, like I know. someone, I mean, it. That's like the one. That's like so. I don't know that anybody could actually stand hearing a record, especially if it's a good one. In that uh, about that stuff, like. Uh, uh, if the record is a, a Berlin. Topic for another day. <laughs> yes. Yeah, but this this song feels like it's leading up to that mm, yeah yeah it's a good song
2: i,
3: I the... the stuff about the yeah like and... about her mom and stuff like about the like what's the one in the kids, the kids? because they think she's not a good mother and all that stuff is like is like um you know that's from what they said about her mom that like made her like lose custody or whatever and stuff like But that wasn't true. And then that was another level of it. It's like, you know, it's like, yeah, I don't know. It's just crazy. Intense. So I think she probably likes to think of this song as such a, like, as like
1: lighter. Yeah.
3: (laughs) Cause it's like a, cause it's like a a, a capsule of when it was actually like, just like loved. But then it does have the forefooting thing, which is interesting because then what actually happens.
5: You're going to read just what you so. You're going to read just what you so. You're going to read just what you so. You're going to reap just what you sow.
1: Autofiction, you know, he's using things from his life, and he's um, he's embellishing or taking certain things away at various points just to make a song come through. And I think he just knocks it out of the park uh, unequivocally on this one.
4: Yeah, I I really love the arrangement too, and I was kind of surprised that it's Mick Ronson playing the piano on it because everybody knows and thinks of him as the great guitar player and uh arranger but i didn't know that he was a
2: pianist and i think it it to me sounds like a response to like big white cloud or gideon's bible like stuff that is so huge and just like orchestral and like takes up so much so much physical space and then also has this you know in in john's case you know very kind of mercurial lyrics like on gideon's bible um, but in this yeah. case, really straightforward lyrics, but also that can be read in a number of different ways. I think this is like the, cl- yeah. the clearest indication that we've had so far on, on any of these episodes of like one of these guys responding to the other based on what they've heard before.
1: Yeah, totally. It does have a big white cloud feeling. And it, whereas maybe John was more like uh, he maybe John thought, you know, if I do this big orchestral number that has that kind of scope. Maybe the best way to not make it schmaltzy is to have a lyric that is really simple, like zen simple, literally
2: just about big white clouds,
1: <laughs> utterly blank page simple, and it does work amazingly well. And perfect day, I think, actually avoids being schmaltzy just because it has these little touches um, that gesture at something deeper. It doesn't. It doesn't really ever. It doesn't ever veer into melodrama. No, Yeah. Not at all.
4: Well it's also such a simple arrangement too, you know? Yeah. That fade out I mean nothing yeah. there's nothing to take your attention away from from the song itself.
1: That's such a great point, Ian, about the perfect day and big white cloud being kind of uh, of a piece in a way. I must Big white day, perfect there you cloud.
2: Go. Maybe you see a big white cloud on a perfect day, one could even say.
3: I feel like when you when you hear the other people sing that sing the song like in that version or or when you hear like you know the opera singer or whatever Elton John. No, but wait, what is the opera singer who sang it with him?
2: Pa- Pavarotti. Pavarotti. <laughs> it's, so, man, it's so funny. It's, it, it's, it's so. Funny. Pavar- it's,
1: that's goofy. It's literally Pavarotti. Yeah, it is
2: literally. Oh, well, he, he, it that, is the, yeah. like,
3: that. It's like then the song sounds Schmaltzy.
1: <laughs> it sounds goofy. Havaanis yeah. yeah. I mean, but it like it, it, I know. It so it's fun. also like delightful i mean that's so uh, that's so fun, but I know but
3: a lot of songs would right i guess
1: hanging round is is next, uh so we just kind of like shake off of that uh ennui and here we are back to the factory yeah, round.
3: I love that. I love that. Oh.
1: around the fact he was feeling nostalgic yeah i love know.
3: rock songs it's like this is oh like- you
1: what say that again louder michael say that again
3: i love rock songs man
1: hell yeah brother that's right man <laughs> hell yeah <laughs> how about we all say i love i rock- love rock songs <laughs> i love rock songs too though and this is a good one
3: yeah i found myself liking all the all the uptempo ones like more than all of it because it reminds me of like rock and roll heart which is like the best loot read album
2: wow you heard it here no i'm just i i don't
3: i I don't have any opinion i i I drop an
2: evan level
1: takes (laughs) yeah no that's i've heard some other crazy takes uh lately um i mean some very astute and sophisticated no
3: it's more like it's changes all the time right it's like that kind of thing
2: yeah i can't wait for you to decide that the raven is the best lou reed record evan
3: oh he will (laughs) that one's good it's
2: an interesting (laughs) idea that one's awesome. No, The Raven is really good. It's just, it's the closest thing to triplicate that I can think of in his discography.
1: Ian Svenonius thinks Coney Island Baby is Lou Reed's masterpiece. I That is, you know, I don't think he's wrong about that. It's a really good album. A
3: lot of people
1: think that. Uh, there's a lot of people who, but uh, but that'll change and move around. I mean, there's always, there's a day when you think Metal Machine is his <laughs> okay. masterpiece because you feel like, you feel like, because uh, you feel like the narrator at the end of Perfect Day. <laughs> when your mom takes
2: away your Xbox
1: uh yeah that's what perfect day is about (laughs) we were playing playing xbox in the park that's a perfect day for some people
3: at the end of perfect day he says that he might get the red rings
1: yeah the red ring this is such that's a this is a dog of a bit this one i'm sorry i'm
2: sorry we didn't go luigi's mansion for you no we're
1: going xbox mode (laughs) with lou reed for no reason uh, this, this song hanging, hanging around.
2: around is this, is this him being nostalgic for the factory or is this him just sort of like kind of stunting on
1: it? You mean, uh, dabbing on it. He's saying, he's saying yeah. that it's not good. <laughs> he's uh saying you keep hanging around me and I'm not so glad you found me. You keep doing things that I gave up years ago. That's a great chorus. Cause it's just like it's. I think everybody relates to that. We all have a friend who, who you, uh, you you just run into them after a while, and you go, Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, man. I'm. I still like that. That's cool. Yeah, I think this and, is him
2: saying, like, you know, is looking back at the the factory folks and not having a very charitable opinion of them. At least the ones that he mentioned yeah. in this in this song.
1: Well, they keep hanging around him. It's like not a mutual thing anymore. Gene was a
2: spoiled young brat.
1: You know the concept of punishers. Uh, the, the, people are saying this a lot lately. I've come on across it, and I've witnessed it in real life. People who just won't shut up when they talk to you at a, you run into them at a bar or something, and they just um, they they make you know that you've run into them for hours. You know, like it just, they they would they'd pin you against the wall sounds like you've been going to a lot of bars with podcasters. It's actually people who probably should have a podcast, but instead they just go to a bar and talk to people. Yeah,
2: people who don't have anyone to podcast with. Yeah, and so... For the
1: love of God, just make a podcast so you can do that at home. You
2: and I can get it out on each other, yeah, but these people would just be like talking to the
1: wall. Yeah, but that's if you find yourself doing that, if you realize people are looking around all the time, they're looking around left and right when you're talking, <laughs> you should probably have a podcast because... There are some people who will, believe it or not, sit down on purpose and listen to you if you just record it.
2: Uh, Walk on the wild side. (laughs) (laughs)
4: <laughs> i i got a, a very strange um slowed down version of like
1: everything that you just said
4: <laughs> why
1: what's wrong with your phone i think it's okay now but
4: it was just um uh, there was a long silence so michael
1: michael dropped his computer but then it actually affected your phone that's because your are brothers <laughs> <laughs> it's, you're you're linked in a way how are, how are you guys by the way I, I feel like I haven't talked to you since you got back to New York um pretty good but are you guys good you you're you like being in New York
3: yeah it's good to be back.
1: it's such so nice out now
4: I feel like we're finally making some some progress on some recording stuff since we've been away for so long so been pretty good that's great you can edit this out I mean I I
1: don't want to edit this out because this song this is about just hanging out and this song is about hanging out and uh, the goings on and people getting to know each other. So this is a good time to just catch up.
3: Do you ever go walk on the
1: wild side? <laughs> yeah, you ever walk on the wild side, Evan? Yeah, you have to ask me that, Michael, of all people. You you and I would walk on the wild <laughs> side every, uh, you know, bi-weekly. That just means know. going. We would, we would go and we would walk. We'd walk up to, yeah, to, we'd, we'd walk on the wild side. We we I would go up to the Upper West Side and we would walk around past all those like very mid restaurants and then we would. <laughs> We'd figure out some place to get lunch, and, and it would be fine. And it would be fine. Go to the park for a bit. Yeah, <laughs> it would be fine, and and uh, it it would be good. It would feel, it it would be all right, uh, and it would be all right.
3: <laughs> it was no, all I miss New right. York a little bit,
1: but I, I'm having too much fun and uh, being a, a layabout in the sun versus a layabout in the in the under the shade of a beautiful skyscraper in mm. new york city <laughs> but you know that's your that's the choice that you got to make in america so do you want to be in the sun or do you want to be in the shade it is another bang up bit folks <laughs> i really don't know what i'm doing right now yeah i can't tell on this show this, on this episode <laughs> No, I really don't know, Ian, (laughs) but I think that I'm just trying to skirt around talking about Walk on the Wild Side, (laughs) a song that is like, come on, like, it's his, It's his Heaven's Door.
2: It's like, it's like such a well-known song that like you can barely even consider it a Lou Reed song, like you can barely even consider Heaven's Door a Bob song, but it's also like just, you know, a perfect, a perfect
1: composition from top to bottom. And as you learn in that doc, um, the bass is there's two bases. The baseline is two bases, also. Yes, it's two bases at once. They're upright and there's an electric. <laughs> I
3: was gonna say. I was about to say. Um, it, it, it's either that or you have to talk about the
1: bass. Well, I mean, <laughs> actually, or you, <laughs> <I was laughs> or you have to talk about the fact that it's character. like a very like. I mean, the character, the characters which are actual real people and a lot of them are, uh, I mean, this album probably shouldn't be talked about without acknowledging, and this gets thrown a lot, thrown around a lot. Um, the idea of like a record being a queer, uh, work of art, or this is queering that, or so like so-and-so is queering whatever genre, but I really feel like this record and this song is like a huge milestone in, I, I, there's no other way to say it, it is fully queer art unabashedly in its uh, content and it, and everything about it.
2: Right.
4: It also gives the the whole glam thing some meaning. You know. Say more about that. Well, I mean, you know, Ziggy Stardust is about a space alien. Yeah. <laughs> or whatever. It's about feeling isolated, I guess. Hmm. But um, he was he was putting on the makeup and whatnot to give it more of a spectacular view and make it more artistic. uh, or I don't know why exactly, but this kind of puts like this and like songs like Makeup kind of put the whole glam thing in in a context that uh, is actually actually speaks to somebody's reality um, rather than.
2: Is than just stage craft yeah I mean I think yeah, that's just shock value and that, that totally makes sense
1: it, that's a really important point to make about the record is that it it this song I mean it's a tribute to real people who I mean this is why it's called transformer I think is that it it's it's a song about people deciding to like just be whatever they want to be and that was sort of this feeling in the air that I think this record is kind of all about and it becomes more about that in this song and the next song especially but there's respect being paid to these people who made these decisions about how they wanted to be how they want to be perceived in the same way that Bowie does on like changes and like all through like hunky dory and stuff like he's making these allusions to like you don't know what's going on anymore. Like things are changing or a whole Ziggy Stardust character is kind of an, an analog for that. But here is Lou, exactly like you were saying, going directly to the source, which is real people living real lives and not a space alien allegory. And he's still, he's really being true to that thing of cutting down to the street level reality that that's something that we love him Mm -hmm. for yeah it's a sweet it's a sweet
2: song about people who don't the specific people in one regard and then also in general like the types of people who don't have a lot of sweet songs written about them especially in 1972 so like you know it's 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 remarkable Mm -hmm. just on that fact on that basis alone and then on top of that it is just musically like we've talked about a little bit with the two bases just perfect
1: yeah hollywood lawn is of course the holly uh in the song and um if you watch that god we keep talking about it but um the some of the best parts of that uh transformer classic albums thing are are her uh moments of talking about like she just has such a way with words and is so charismatic um and and was so like it's sort of like surprised and it seems a little bit like faux insulted at the song like I can't believe I he wrote this about me like I've only met him once at a party how did he know that I'd shave my legs and pluck my, my eyebrows uh, but it, it's clearly I think appreciated I think as a, a loving tribute
4: and then is there one verse in this song or is it another song where he wrote it based on one of Andy Warhol's Mm -hmm. movies like one of the characters in his movies rather than the real
1: Uh, no I believe it is this song but I don't know is it I don't remember which one one it was Hmm. Joey, Little Joe
2: Little Joe Oh, yeah, I see this right now in Genius. Third Warhol superstar reference in the song, Joe D'Alessandro, never became a major film star, but he's generally considered to be the most famous male sex symbol of American underground films of the 20th century, as well as a sex symbol of gay subculture. You
1: know, that's a pretty cool title to have. You know, who wants to be a movie star when you can be considered the most famous gay sex symbol of underground film? There you go. Oh, damn, This this
2: this, this is the guy who's crotch you see on sticky fingers and it's also he's also the cover of uh the first smith's album so he's a real uh, kind of underground hero
1: 100 percent.
2: you know that whole
4: i don't know if this was something that norm mcdonald tweeted about with bob dylan but i feel like <laughs> i've seen this this written a lot um bob dylan saying it in interviews and stuff talking about the difference between a writer and a journalist you know mm, mm-hmm. where he kind of talks about
2: that was in that story that norm wrote on twitter about bob like monologuing to him one time and bob supposedly said you know uh most writers think they're writers but they're really journalists
4: and that was also something that he allegedly said to phil oaks saying you're not a writer you're a journalist you know <laughs> yeah hey, uh, well,
1: god that's yeah brutal yeah. it was mean to him. yeah
4: everything that Lou Reed writes you could probably accuse him of that since a lot of it is documenting I mean you I guess you could
1: you could if you were like being really um uncharitable I, I think that like uncharitable is a charitable term for someone who would say that I'm trying to be like, charitable
2: I'm trying I'm not trying to be uncharitable
1: yeah I'll, I'll be uncharitable to someone who's going to be uncharitable to Lou Reed wow <laughs> I mean if if you're doing that like I think that you really don't get that he's he's a really amazing artist for what he decides to include like he does yeah it's based on real things happening and it's the truth a lot of it is like really ground level truth but it not just anybody can know what truth to share and what truth to um extend or or truncate and he just has this magic touch for which pieces of the truth are the most likely to stir the imagination or emotion. In other words, he's an artist, he's not a journalist.
2: Yes. Yeah. Makeup. Makeup.
5: Your face when sleeping is sublime. So
1: this is like the first of the songs on the record that feels like uh just musical theater
2: yeah he's having fun man
4: it's it's such a cool bass line too right at the beginning um i read that that was klaus Bormann, which is kind of cool really
1: that is cool yeah what else was klaus Bormann on
4: uh all things must pass and uh imagine and plastic ono band
1: Nice.
4: Yeah, like, like you worked with all the Beatles a lot. This and uh Andy's Chest were always my favorite songs on this album. Um That makes sense. They have such laid-back arrangements. It's just I I, I don't, it's interesting to think of them getting this together, you know, like how it sounded uh in its rawest form because like with Andy's Chest if you've heard that, like un- Velvet Underground version, it was completely different. Mm-hmm. You know, it was an up, upbeat. Yeah, it sounds totally different. Song.
2: Yeah, it's a rave up.
4: And it just seems like, like with this, it's it's so yeah, it's just laid back. I I don't know what it's you. It's so laid back. It
1: it's like got that that trombone or tr- uh, no tuba?
4: Is it? That yeah. Bump
1: bum, 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 It's bum.
4: kind of like groovy too, somehow. But
1: it, I feel like this song. I was trying to say earlier that i see a lot of parallels with hunky dory by david bowie especially oh you pretty things like i feel like this song is kind of doing the same thing but it is a bit more specific it's way more specific again like we just can't get away from these that relationship between bowie who tends toward this more universal maybe like Cosmic, like non specific version of talking about what things feel like, how things are changing in the youth and the culture. And uh, Lou Reed is right there in an actual uh, milieu and like a scene where he's watching people physically dress themselves up and create a new reality for themselves, uh, specific people just like Walk on the Wild Side, it's it's an extension of that, um, where he's really honoring that impulse. of. Uh, I mean, he says, literally, uh, we're coming out, out of our closets. Out of it's, closets, Sam. Yeah. The whole song is kind of like, what are you going to... It has this laid-back quality at the same time, as if to say, what are you going to do about yeah. it? Yeah.
2: That's how it is. It's very funny that this is what a Lou Reed song sounds like in at the end of 1972 like with the horns yeah. and this like the the literal like broadway show tune kind of melody to it after like where he was two three years before this Yeah
4: I mean you can hear like how that kind of stuff could have been added to something like after hours or something
1: Could have um, been Yeah
4: there's like a cinematic scope to like murder mystery and songs like that mm-hmm. but it seems like this the fact that they on this album added those things in pretty subtly and tastefully um is pretty cool you know i mean the fact that they added it at all with you know bowie's reverence for the velvet underground is cool because it shows that they were kind of going on the same trajectory that they were already um headed uh, to yeah. with um with uh, ziggy stardust and what Bowie would do later on and stuff. It's, it is is one of those lightning in the bottle kind of moments because all of their, their, all of their careers were just going in this, this direction.
1: Something I've taken from this record is that it shows, you know, you look at the Velvet Underground's earlier stuff. And I think like we all probably feel like, you know, it's such an amazing, that's lightning in a bottle in its own way. It's, it really is like, it's, this moment of intense energy and uh, just drive being captured where it's almost like the tape can't contain it. It feels like bigger than what's happening, uh, especially the early stuff. I mean, and white light, white heat is like, for me, the apotheosis of that. It's like just so fiery that it feels like it's barely being contained by this record. And here, you're starting to see the people who are capable of that type of energy creatively now kind of like a few years later, they're getting down to brass tacks and being like, well, what can we do with, uh, some more focus? Like once the dust has settled, I'm still the guy who did that. You know, what, what can I actually like put together and, You find out that after the big explosion, there's still like a really it's that that energy is still essentially there. It's just being directed now in this way that is more mature in some ways or like more intentional or focused or. uh, Yeah, I think intentional. Intentional. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if you're David Bowie and Mick Ronson and you're producing the new Lou Reed record like, and you love the Velvet Underground, the easiest thing to do would be like, oh, let's take these Lou Reed songs that he wrote when he was still in the Velvet Underground and make it sound like a Velvet Underground record. But they don't do that. They put him on the stage and a hooting trumpet and set him loose, and it turns out great. Yes, we're coming
5: out yeah, we're coming out. Yeah, we're coming out.
1: Satellite of love. You like this one? Yeah. What a tune. That's
4: a beautiful. What a tune. Song. Yeah. Yeah. Satellites gone up to the sky.
5: like that drive me out of my mind. I watched it for a little while. I like to watch things on TV. Satellite.
2: Another one that's just like it's barely even a Lou Reed song because it's just like so universal, it just feels like it's existed forever. It's almost yeah. you know, this is this is a what more is there to say kind of song, but I mean, it's it's amazing. The Velvet's version of this is also funny to listen to,
4: yeah. It's an up that's another up tempo one, right?
2: Totally, yeah, exactly. And, and it's got I mean, it sounds like a loaded song because it's from the like loaded sessions and stuff, but like I think this one where like on Perfect Day was a little much for me with you know, kind of the all the big picture uh, orchestration and stuff, like the way they build this one and get like the, the vocals coming in towards the end and stuff, like this one, they nail it on this.
4: I mean, he was really great at working with people. You know, I mean, it, it doesn't really seem like, it seems like there are a lot of artists that probably would um, be opposed to like, you know, th- such, a, such a prominent feature of like the biggest like, Pop star of that time, you know, right. doing the background vocals on your song, you know? Yeah. Um. But I don't know. It, it's so cool in that um, movie where uh, he's listening to uh, all of the isolated vocals and just kind of marveling at it.
1: i was listening to the flute. The, the little flute is so funny. Yeah. You've
4: been bold
1: with Harry, Mark, and John.
5: Tuesday, Wednesday to Thursday with Harry, Mark, and
1: John. Did you hear that yeah, on in the, the background bridge. during the Harry, Mark, and John part? That's Mick Ronson,
2: too. On the flute? M-
1: Mick Ronson on the flute? <laughs> on the recorder. Oh, it's a recorder? <laughs> yeah. Michael, you're just, you've are just you been kind of just nodding <laughs> along to this. You said um, this is
2: a Hangout episode. He's just hanging out.
1: Huh. Oh, no, I did. I gave you permission to hang out, but I have been trying to like st- uh, just uh, exert myself and try to come up with bullshit to say. You're <laughs> the star of the show on this. One. I, I really don't mean to be, but I feel like I've gotta um, be the. I've gotta act as the that fucking documentary, uh, and just kind of be <laughs> that documentary for this hey. one. Because uh, I've seen it probably a bunch of times. Yes.
3: Yeah. Well. That song's cool. <laughs> that, yeah, it's funny. Like, I guess it's it is weird. Like, it's like, like, I don't know. Yeah, Brian's right. He's good at working with people in a way. Like, like, you know, like, then he goes on to work with Bob Ezrin and he does a crazy ass production on his stuff. You know, I mean, that that's kind of like he's letting them put their signature all over. His stuff, and he's like, maybe he was, I mean, maybe he didn't do that in the future, but you
2: know, he didn't really do that. Work
3: with Mills, uh, Lofgren,
4: like when
2: he brings Robert Quine in, you know, like he's
3: well, yeah, maybe he's got to work with people, but then he fires Robert Quine, so maybe he's got to work with people who doesn't threaten
1: him. Yeah, he fires Quine because his arena. Quine was kind of too. Quine was too much of a kale for him. Yeah, like exactly. That. I think maybe there's something there where Lou sometimes, I mean, Lou, like my best <laughs> friend, you know, Lou Reed. He sometimes it feels like um we can we can guess maybe that when things get a little avant-garde in that way, you know, that's not his wheelhouse. Like that's really not where he is as um an artist. It's not his strength. Like he has a different strength that is much more connected to classic blues and pop and R&B uh, and b and doo type stuff. Then how would you place um, metal and machine that music? that is something he keeps, in like, context of that. I think that that's an intentional, like, for whatever reason, he was in a mode where he was like, let me just do that. Um, I think that,
2: I mean, we'll get to that when we get to it. But I think that is, a, like, the same way that uh, Perfect Day was a response to, like, vintage violent stuff. I think metal machine music it was clearly a response to fear
1: perhaps like that's yeah i mean fear this is kind of what i'm getting at is that there's this thing of um sometimes that poetic uh mode where it's a little bit more adventurous like on satellite of love really pays off and this is a great example where a a, a lyric that is really not for it's not um feeding you like with a spoon what it it's not spoon feeding you what it's about it's actually a really clever and sort of mercurial lyric about what lou says is about jealousy to him but that he could be wrong to quote him this song is a great example of when that works but overall lou has a different strength and something that john doesn't necessarily always have um but when john or or quine or whoever is in his orbit gets a little bit more toward that that equally valid but um maybe threatening avant-garde type of art artistic um fervor lou shrinks back or tries a different tactic or fires to or fires them yeah uh i mean quine is such a great guitarist but he was like a john kale yeah you
3: know like his his strength like or
1: like his uh, thing like
3: in the room with a bunch of really really great musicians or like a person like david bowie or anything is that he's the guy who's like raw and like you know like totally like bare bones or whatever and if anybody steps into that arena then it's kind of like he doesn't really i don't know that he really like
2: maybe that's where he gets
3: kind of threatened you know
2: you better not step into lou reed's arena because john
3: kale can do can do the aggression and the strip downs and all that stuff, as well as Lou Reed, can you know? I mean, that's
1: if not better in some cases. That you know. stripped down aggressive mode
2: is a little more nat- comes a little more natural to John, I think. I don't know that he necessarily does it better always, but it seems like something that he is you know lives in a little easier than
1: Lou. Maybe, but I I actually wonder. Maybe I think you might be right, but um yeah you know, it's 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 funny that that's more what Lou is famous for well, that's um, that's
3: because of the uh, that's because of the story of john being a John Kell being the classical musician and Lou being the thing i mean the, and then that being the thing they come they come together and that's what makes this the thing you know that being the narrative like which is true, but I mean, just that being the narrative is like that's why he's famous for that, and he's not famous for that. Also, because Lou Reed is
2: more famous than John Cale. That is definitely true.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, and and also the the market just definitely will eventually agreed with Lou Reed more than with John Cale because it would naturally. I mean, he is the one who John gravitated toward because he thought there's something interesting about rock music about about what's happening here. And everyone else felt that way, too. Um, John is also equally able, if not, I mean, in some cases, even more fearlessly and kind of recklessly able to throw himself into this thing of being, like, way out onto the edge of the dangerous, like, truth of of stuff. And, yeah, that that can be threatening to someone like Lou, who, who is great because he's got a handle on... He's the just, the yeah, he's just a classic pop songwriter,
2: right right back to the fucking ostrich. Like it's 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 all there from yeah, the very beginning. That, that's <laughs> the reason it all happened.
1: Yeah. We haven't talked about the ostrich, but it was a novelty song that Lou wrote for uh was it for Pickwick? Yeah, yeah. One of those, you know,
2: just corny song factories.
1: Just a novelty, like a basically a spoof uh popular dance number. Um where just by just by creative uh, boredom or just like uh, being being inspired in some way, it ended up being kind of like a really punkish song because of the way that it was recorded and just like the shambolic nature of it and like the way that things were tuned down really weird. And it actually kind of became a hit because of how like ugly and, and dumb it was. It was like intentionally ugly pop yeah, it sounds
2: it's like his version of Louie Louie.
1: <laughs> okay, when well, everybody settle down
5: now. We got some Louie going to show you. So I'm not too dead when we come outside your head,
1: Yeah, and uh, it's what brought Lou and John together. We'll get into that at another point, but we, we've gone very far afield at this point talking about Satellite of Love.
2: Satellite of Love. I like when he says, I like to watch things on TV. It always makes me smile when
1: I hear him say that. Me too. I I also <laughs> like that. So wait, uh, what,
4: what, what uh, will be filled with parking cars? The
1: the Satellite itself, or is that what the satellites watch? Mars, Mars. Will be filled with parking pe- Mars. Cars. Oh, that's oh, actually Mars. a great line that is that's pretty mysterious. Is I, I mean, it's more true than ever, it's increasingly true. If Lou
2: Reed wrote this today, he'd say, Uh, sooner it'll be filled with parking Teslas.
1: <laughs> wagon wheel is the next song. <laughs> um, won't you be my wagon wheel?
4: Weird drums on this song. Seems like he's like. Weird drums. like he's like figuring it out, you know. Um, Weird. That's drums all I have to say about this. one. The more
3: fleshed out, like ones, like I mean, not fleshed out really, but the more like, um, what would you call that? What do you call that? What, when it's like, um, almost like a gimmicky song, but the more like, you know, like, like New York telephone conversation. Or, makeup like what do you call that like um novelty yeah i like i mean all the song i love all the songs but the i like i said before like just listening to the rock ones i really like lately i just want to listen to the rock stuff
4: yes so many like great just catchy phrases on the whole album you know <laughs> that are also very poignant you know like the we're coming out of our closet You know, you've got to live your life as though you're number one. As
1: though. Yeah. Yeah.
4: The things that kind of border on cliche, even at that point, you know, because it's like contextualized with like great poetry, it just brings it out, you know.
1: And you're going to reap just what you sow. Literally a cliche. But uh, suffice it to say that on this song and others on Transformer, it really feels just so... It connects with people you know because he's being playful enough to give you a little bit of something that's like a little dangerous or strange and then give you something that's really accessible really just second nature to hear and he does that all over this record at a like with a a frequency that i think just uh keeps you interested and everything about the th- the record just kind of um if you start getting bored, like wait a minute, and you're you're gonna be hooked back in again.
2: Yeah, all of these songs are like three minutes long, so like it's it's just you know you're popping different pieces of candy. If you if you get an if you get an orange, yeah. don't worry, there's gonna be a strawberry right around the corner.
1: Yeah, well, if you hate uh, the yellow ones for some reason, or the green ones, or blue for some reason, whatever the case, you might not like uh, New York Telephone Conversation. <laughs> That's like the white one. It's yeah. the mystery flavor.
5: It's fun. I was sleeping gently, napping when I heard the phone. Who is on the other end talking? Am I even home? Did you see what she did to him? Did you hear what they said? Just a New York conversation rattling in my head. Oh.
4: Oh my and who really cares featuring David Bowie um singing the
2: entire time That's Bowie on the backing vocals, Brian? Yeah. David Bowie. <laughs> <laughs>
4: the <laughs> Starman himself. Aladdin Sane.
2: <laughs> the Thin White Duke. <laughs>
4: I believe he was. I, I, this, this is a conspiracy theory, but I firmly believe that he was. I firmly believe that he was the Starman at the time of the production of this album.
1: What do you mean? I believe that he
4: was the character, the Starman, Ziggy. It <laughs> was on his oh, ID, so Starman. I don't, that, I don't really yeah. believe that David Bowie produced this album. Instead, I believe it was one of his was alter ego.
2: Interesting. This is sort of a Bob Dylan, Jack Fate, uh, or excuse me, Jack this Frost. Song,
1: uh, <laughs> New York Conver- telephone conversation is is just another one that actually goes even deeper into this totally un rock vibe that is um, about. He's going out of his way to pay tribute once again to the f- feel and the 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 scene of like warhol's new york this is
2: a concept record it's not too far off of it for sure you know it is in the good way what's the bad way
1: i don't know i don't, I just don't like the idea of concept record I this is the
4: it. epitome of the
1: concept album
4: it takes place in new york city um yes this is a conversation between some of the main characters.
1: <laughs> this record, I think, when, if we talk about it as a concept album, I think it's a really successful one because it's one, there's one concept that makes an effort. He makes an effort. He really does put that all the way through it. He shoots it through each act of the record. If you were to split it into three, there's not one where you escape this idea of new york and the factory and the scene that's happening around that and uh it it, this record really is free to roam around enough that it doesn't feel chintzy or like uh, the thing that i think ends up being a problem with certain concept records is that it's they're held back by the concept there's this feeling like we can't do something because it doesn't fit into the concept and i feel like If this is a concept record, it's one that succeeds by being um, totally unconcerned with those limits.
2: Yeah, it's very effortless from a songwriting perspective. Everything is very natural and all fits together very easily.
4: Unfortunately, it remains not a concept album.
3: Yeah, it's not a concept.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I guess it's not. I mean, ultimately he avoids it. The concept record is the one where you just, you decide to be unsexy for the sake of the story. Yeah.
3: Well I mean I just think like for
1: those characters we love
3: well, I just think that you know like just because like a lot of um like like black Sabbath I don't know I'm just trying to think of like an example like just because like all all of like uh, like somebody's songs are all about like you know something you know like that doesn't mean that it's a concept album
1: you know what I mean yeah, but this record being called Transformer, I think it's got like it's got like 51% concept album. Maybe the maybe the 49 is not, but like hmm. there's enough that tips it over the edge into feeling like basically, now you can
2: call you can call it a light concept album. Obviously not as heavy of a yeah. concept as the next Lou record, but
1: we
4: call it a diet diet concept. I don't even think of <laughs> Berlin as a heavy-handed concept album, you know? I mean, the only thing that even cover did, really. New
1: York, for example.
4: Yeah, it's like just the packaging and and. Um,
1: he's
2: got on Berlin. It's sort of like a song cycle, and you're following the characters all the way throughout. You know, like that is a much more. Kind but it of, isn't and, written and any different than this album. Yeah,
4: you know?
1: well, maybe we could say that of a concept record that's successful, it's you don't think of it as that. Sure. You just are involved in what's happening. Yeah, you're
2: not listening to it for this story or something.
1: Yeah, no, well, if you do, you just think of the record as being, like, you just, it's like a movie in your mind that you just don't, you don't think back about, like, it's the effort being made to create a story through music. It's just... Yeah, it just happens naturally. Yeah, and I think that Lou has done that several times, and this is kind of an example of that, really covertly, and just by chance and the fact of the people the the people who are working on it so many factors aligned to create this feeling that actually it works on that level um without even trying to and then berlin works on that level while trying to and we're gonna say later on i think that a certain other record the final record (laughs) maybe works on that level as well and that's it's really interesting I mean, it's important, I think, for us to talk about that on this episode about Transformer because it's something you can't avoid when you talk about Lou Reed is that he has that impulse in him. He wants to make a musical. Like, it keeps happening. It, keep, it keeps fucking happening. Where he's, The Raven. He, yeah, the Raven. Lulu. He keeps doing things that gesture and move toward storytelling on a, and street hassle. The sure. song itself this grand storytelling thing—it's *Street Hassle* is really has more in common with *Brownsville Girl* than any other song. Bad, honestly, not a bad take. It's quite <laughs> not a bad take. I, I've been doing this for a second, so maybe I can come up with one uh. take that's not bad. But that's something that I just would like to stress on the episode about the most popular Lou Reed record. He's got this bug in him that is like storytelling to a degree where it starts to be more literary than it is music maybe and or it drags the music along into the literary and you're either with him or you're not
2: and we'll see that journey continue to unfold in the weeks ahead you could say he's 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 so so free free, you could say (laughs) michael you like this one this is a rock song it's one of my favorite ones
3: that on the beginning but then but then we had to clap but i don't know if that's cool but i can play it again I'm off my phone into the speaker
2: play it again let's yeah, do, play let's it again off
3: the phone yeah
1: <laughs> do it um, let's hear that beautiful song.
2: <laughs> let's hear that rock and roll music
1: well, well we don't have another way of playing it through that That's the episode, right. This this is the way.
2: <laughs> this sounds really good yeah. cuz Zoom is sounds, like cutting the audio good. out. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, it's cutting it out like at in big chunks. <laughs>
3: yes, I am I'm done.
1: I do what I want, and I
2: want what I see. And
1: I, and I what? I want what I see. I do what I want, and I want what I see. I do what I see. I do what I see. Could only happen to me. <laughs> it's a really funny song.
4: I like when he says that he has horns and fins.
1: That's another good
2: one. Michael sounds like the Terminator now. <laughs>
1: Michael, you sound you sound so <laughs> fucked up right now. Say something else. This
3: is the I Believe in Love of this album. Okay, you're back. <laughs> rock and roll hard. That's right. I believe in good time, dun. dun, 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 dun. Kind of got that kind of feel a little bit.
2: Maybe Swinging.
3: I love that feel. Yeah,
1: it's swinging.
2: That Rock and roll feeling.
1: I love that rock and roll feeling, too. I think we actually all we all are fans of that rock and roll Rock and roll, and roll three
2: feeling. stars, as far as I'm concerned.
1: Yeah, three stars for me. Oh, I love you, Suzanne. I love you, Suzanne is so good. It This has a little bit of I love, I love you, Suzanne in it.
4: Good call. Have you seen that interview where he's talking about how he wasn't going to put that on the album, but his wife, Sylvia, said... His wife, Sylvia.
3: Oh, oh, I love you,
4: Suzanne. That's what he said. I love you, Suzanne. Okay. I saw that today. I get. I wonder... Suzanne? Who? Who is Suzanne? Wait, why
3: didn't he want to put it on? Because
1: of the name? Because
4: it came so easily. Oh. Because it just came so
1: easily. Wow. Well, that's a good point to make, is that, you know, a lot of his stuff, maybe it sounds easy, but it doesn't mean it necessarily sure. was. It means a lot was taken a lot of time was taken to figure out how to make it easy, how to make it feel easy. Well, what, what he says in
4: that interview is that it was so easy for him to write, but he realizes that he can't just sit down and write that kind of song. But which, which made, made me wonder what the songs, what kind of song he felt that he could just sit down and start writing, you
2: know?
1: Well, Dylan, Dylan said that on a night like this, he said very something really similar. He said about that that, that didn't se-
2: seem like a song that he would have written.
1: Yeah, it was like so simple. It was like something about that. He was like, I think they probably felt the same way. There, they're kind of like, well, that was just too easy. It was too, and and the result though is that it feels really great to listen yeah. to. It's like so fun. Um, there. Did you notice in the documentary that we'll keep bringing up forever uh the transformer (laughs) movie um it was uh there's a part where they're talking about like the lyrical side of of what's been done in rock music and and lou says something of like well you know it had never been done before except for maybe old blues musicians and that was him just not he was just being like dylan does not exist (laughs) That kind of like real poetic stuff where you're talking about real things but in a poetic way, it just hadn't been done. Until I did
3: it. <laughs> you probably heard yeah. that. You heard that interview where he talks about Dylan a little bit?
1: Well, he says he, he's a pretentious kike. I'm allowed to say that, by the way. Half of you is. Half of me? What are you talking about? Oh, I thought you were only half. No, oh, I'm not fully right. Jewish. And I'm also fully pretentious. <laughs> no
3: there's a one where he just says like it's just it was a totally different thing
1: says what well
3: just says his lyrics he's just like he's he's just like all that imagery and all that
1: it's just a totally. well it is it it is a totally different thing i mean that's it i think it took a minute for him to realize what he was doing was gonna be a totally different that
4: is funny though that what you mentioned evan about the end of andy's chest and how dylan-esque it really is i mean he does he does do that he just doesn't he just mostly doesn't do that he drifts into it
1: but on that one he he does it and it's funny to it, it is really interesting to think about andy's chest as being like maybe the reason why it has those silly moments in it those goofy sort of yeah dylan type totally had stuff like that uh No, but maybe I feel like the reason that maybe that song has that by Lou is that he if it were just that that poetic love song type territory, it would feel a little bit too close to him aping just straight up Dylan like he it would feel like Sad Eyed Lady, which kind of just speaks to how much he felt about Andy Warhol and how like that song really is. I mean, it's just I. I will bring. I, I'm bringing this up again just because that moment in that documentary is so powerful, where he casts a different light on those lyrics, where it really comes through as him realizing almost for himself that he had written those lyrics really with like a, an intense feeling toward Andy Warhol, that maybe doesn't even show up at any other point with that much. Uh, just hard on its sleeve. Like I'm going to go and be more poetic than I know that I can be just for you because you're such a great artist. You're, you've been such a great mentor. I think it's like a really interesting and beautiful moment on this record and in Lou's career.
4: Yeah. I think it's really the only moment like that on this album too.
1: And he has to kind of hide it a little bit by Couching it in these sillier poetic things, but I think those moments are really where he's kind of actually showing something deeper that he will continue to move toward in his later career. This uh, being less concerned with hiding that poetic side and the way he ends his career, you know, if we're talking right now about the first thing he ever did that made a big splash, the last thing he ever did is. A real commitment to that—that uh, that impulse to just be purely poetic, and to just shoot for something. Maybe he doesn't even know that he can do. And with that, I think we can go into the last song on the record. Let's say good night, ladies.
2: Good night, ladies.
5: Ladies, good night.
4: Time what more
5: is there to say yeah I
4: mean it really it's pretty similar to uh, the vibe of After Hours you know as like a yeah. closing song and saying goodbye to everybody and, and it's sweet you know
2: I love that it's goodnight ladies T.S. Eliot The Wasteland goodnight ladies ladies goodnight maybe you got it from Hamlet Oh, and excuse me. So T.S. Eliot, yeah, was quoting Ophelia from Hamlet.
1: So that's
2: got a got a long history of saying goodnight to the
1: ladies. Ladies, good night? Yeah. Good night. Good night, good night.
5: I mean, this song has
1: this kind of, uh, there's no other way to say it, Woody Allen jazz band quality to it. I bet you love that. Well, uh, you know, New York icons. <laughs> you can't deny that
2: feel like Gatsby Wells listening to this
1: yeah Gatsby Wells probably has this on his iPod classic that he still has because he is not going to get a (laughs) is that an actual
2: thing that happens in that movie
1: no, actually, I'm making that up. Yeah. I, I don't remember. <laughs> that seems like
2: something that would be real.
1: I'm sure he has an iPhone. I, I think he talks about it. If a he phone has phone. an iPhone or not. Have you guys seen Rainy Day in New York? I have not. <laughs> I'll tell you
3: one thing. He, he, uh, he certainly prefers, you know, New York
1: to any other place in the world.
5: You could say that New
1: York City is kind of a character in that film. That in, in a way, in a way, that there's even a character called New York City in all the movie Rainy Day We've in New York. Been together for the time.
2: I hope you edited all this out.
1: <laughs> uh, ladies, good night.
4: Joker Men.
0: Just a perfect day Drink sangria in the park And then later when it gets dark We go home Just a perfect day Feed the animals in the zoo Just a perfect day Problems all left alone Weekend is on our own, it's such fun Just a perfect day You made me forgive myself I was somebody else Somebody good You're gonna read just what you, just what you saw,
5: you're gonna, you're gonna, you're gonna run. I read what you saw.